everybody, welcome to the DeFi Mafia podcast here today with Dylan and Mike as always. And today we have special guest Max from Fiat Dow. Uh, how you doing today, Max? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, so we'll just get right into it. For the people listening who don't know what Fiat DAO is and don't know who you are, could you give us a little background? Sure. Um, so like you pointed out, I'm one of the co-founders of a project called Fiat DAO. We, uh, I guess, went public with our, our building efforts uh, back in November and launched our protocol about two months ago now. And so what we work on at Fiat is essentially this idea of when the real world will get called a, a repo market, uh, meaning that we allow users to bring loans that they have made on other protocols, specifically fixed income ones, um, and actually be able to unlock liquidity against them while they wait for you know, maturity to, to come about. Um, so at this point, we support collateral types from notional finance, yield, and uh, element finance as well. And so the kind of goal we're trying to you know, achieve here is to kind of reduce the cost of using those types of platforms and actually make fixed income way more appealing uh, than it has been in DeFi today. And can you explain a little more broadly, because uh, obviously fixed income is not a DeFi uh, new thing. Could you explain that for people listening, what that is? Sure. So fixed income refers to a kind of lending scenario in which you've lent out assets for a fixed amount of time at a fixed amount of kind of yield. Um, so, you know, your USDC has been locked away for three months, six months, nine months, and you're getting, well, I don't know what you're getting these days anymore, but let's just, you know, call 5% annualized. Mm -hmm. uh, and regardless of what happens, you are kind of guaranteed uh that amount of money back. Now, obviously there's caveats to that in DeFi, right? Like, you know, if you earn 20% UST back, well, <laughs> you know, that UST doesn't have to be worth anything and so on. Uh, smart contract risk is kind of our version of counterparty risk and all that jazz. So, you know, I, I might speak in absolutes here when kind of describing these things in theory, but obviously if there's risk, you should be aware of it. You know, mm -hmm. all, the, all the usual caveats, yeah. Cool. Yeah, like one of the reasons I want to have you on, I've been following Fiat Dow pretty much since, when did you guys launch? Um, we've been like a public name since November. So, yeah, okay. yeah, I think I've been following pretty much since the beginning. I, I think fixed income, it's like, it's kind of a little boring as far as DeFi, like it's not the sexy thing. But if you right. compare to TradFi, I mean, it's, I mean, fixed income is the biggest market in the world, one of the biggest markets in the world. Yeah. Max, yeah, actually, I wanted to chime in there. I, uh, um, I actually just told the guys this too before you hopped on. But I, uh, when I was interviewing for crypto jobs, I was talking to Mark Yusko in November. I met him mm -hmm. uh, face to face, and he mentioned you guys to me. He was exactly so, yeah, around, he was in the seed round. Yep, around that time period. Yeah, Morgan Creek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm from yeah. Raleigh, North Carolina, like right where he's from. But anyways, continue on. I just Got, wanted to gotcha. chime in. I heard about you guys around that time period. Yeah. Cool. So like. On the, since we mentioned yield, um, how do you, or I guess, I, I don't know, everything kind of encompasses, but like, given the state of DeFi right now, how are you guys thinking about like risk management and uh, all of the, I don't know, contagion, whatever people are, are talking about and worried about these days? Like, do you guys focus on that at all? Or are you more just leaving that to users? I mean, totally, right? So I guess, I guess what I, I kind of buried the lead, right? So with, with fiat right like our end game is this idea of a repo market now that's really far away like winter mute is not going to be market making bonds tomorrow and all that mm -hmm. stuff right so like our idea of like a minimally viable product for like approximating this concept um is this idea of the fiat stable coin um so if you know for the listeners who have used maker abra reflexer um you know chi all, all the collateralized debt position type stables before it, they'll be kind of comfortable with what we've built in our MVP, which allows users to essentially mint a stable against locked up stables, right? That's kind of our UX at the moment. And so bring back, bringing it back to your question, right? If we had accepted UST in the three weeks we were alive before they crashed, 
wouldn't have been pretty, right? It would have required a bailout essentially. So risk management is definitely top of mind for us, very much so at the moment. You know, in the future, I do think it's something that can be more, um, you know, um, that's something that falls more on individual users who enter into individual kind of uh, transactions. But for now, it's very top of mind. And so with all of that said, um, the kind of collateral types we accept today, I think we're at 12 at the moment. They're all DAI or USDC denominated. Uh -huh. And essentially where the risk management comes in is in kind of what percentage are we charging for you to mint fiat against those positions? Right now, most of them are 1% annualized. That's a function of kind of certain other um, parameters within the larger DeFi landscape. So, you know, if you look at like Nexus Mutual or other insurance options, you know, what are they charging to insure a deposit in notional finance, in element finance um, and, and stuff like that. Um, and in practice, because of the discount on wrapped NXM, you know, we've done math, we've written about it on our forum, <laughs> to, to put it very bluntly, right? Um, but it is very much top of mind. Um, and I will say it's, it's a bit unnerving, right? Because we really don't have a recourse should there be a hack of element finance or notional finance. Um, one of the kind of like things we've been working on is like, how can the protocol hedge itself and, you know, actively use fees to purchase uh, hedging insurance and stuff like that. But um, it is something we kind of just accept at the moment, which I, you know, our, our team has obviously gone very much in the weeds with these collateral types we accept because it is a very arduous kind of process to onboard a specific protocol as, as collateral. And so I think the partners we have today are, you know, some of the top tier smart contract examples in DeFi. But mm -hmm. as we all know, like nothing is is a certain at this point. And so you kind of just have to pick your poison, right? Um, I think today we we take on these over collateralized debt positions as collateral, and so you don't really have to worry about true default risk. But in exchange, you do have to worry about smart contract risk. Um, right. Yeah. So when you work with someone like Notional, uh, and could you explain a little w what Notional is uh, for people listening? I'm vaguely familiar. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, we've defined fixed income earlier on the show here, but there's a number of ways that certain DeFi protocols are kind of approximating this concept of, of fixed income, right? Because like mm -hmm. technically none of these things are true bonds just yet. None of this is like real debt. Um, right. So in the, in the case of Notional, um, it's very much a, a similar experience to Aave or Compound, but instead of it being open-ended, right? Like if you go on Aave or Compound, you can deposit and no one knows when you're going to withdraw and you can borrow and no one knows when you're going to repay. Uh, Notional says you have to tell us how long you're going to stay in there and you're going to have to tell us how long you're borrowing. Uh, so I think you know, the, the two types we accept at the moment are USDC from Notional and DAI from Notional. Uh, there's usually three different tenors live at any given moment. So that's three months, six months, or 12 months uh, at the moment. And what we're accepting as collateral are essentially these deposits by users who have said, I'm giving my DAI to Notional for the next six months. Mm -hmm. um, in exchange, they're getting some type of yield that's represented by an IOU token, and you can plop that IOU token in our protocol and kind of mint fiat from there. Um, whereas something like Element Finance, they're a bit different. Um, with Element Finance, they are representing a deposit in any existing like yield bearing opportunity. So like a, a urine finance fault, for example, mm -hmm. and you make that deposit through them. And what they give you back is a principal token and a yield token. Mm -hmm. So in that case, um, your principal token is the 100 USDC plugged in to that urine vault. And the yield token is whatever your deposit earns over the next three months, six months, whatever it may be. And so, with uh, element tokens, it's a bit different, but essentially you're able to get fixed income by either selling your yield token right away or by buying a principal token at a discount to its face value 
on the secondary market for it. So those are the two main ways people are able to get fixed income in DeFi today. It's either you're lending at a fixed rate or you're kind of depositing through one of these yield splitter apps, which Element is, which like APY is, Pendle Finance, there's, there's a few of them. Right. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit convoluted, but there's at least some type of <laughs> kind of common architecture uh, there today. Yeah, I, I was trying to ask because like, trying to understand because obviously risk is top of mind like with notional or element doing different things so like on notional they the yield they're generating is only from the borrowers on their platform or do they have other yield sources too uh so it's a combination of people borrowing and so they have like a uh, interest rate curve that's based on utilization like Aave or compound do and then also put latent funds into compound. And I think they're working on adding Aave support. So you have kind of this, um, like, let's call it like ambient, right? Yield generation that goes on as well. Mm -hmm. um, and ideally, right, you're able to figure out, you're able to match market participants a little bit better with this kind of like fixed mechanism, right? Because if you're able to get a bunch of people that, you know, are comfortable giving out their die for three months um, and they're only lending it to people who want to borrow die for three months. In theory, right, you should have a bit more market efficiency rather than something like Avir Compound where um, you have no clue, right? Like you could withdraw your, like an example would be maybe you want to withdraw your die from Ave, like, but um, a ton has been borrowed by someone who has no intention of paying it back anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, and usually, like, obviously, we've seen Aave and Compound weather, like, severe volatility in crypto markets. So, like, they have the mechanism designed to kind of, like, combat those scenarios. But, you know, like, it, it is a reality, right? Like, it is some form of tail risk that has some form of probability of happening. People who like may have used like cream in the past or, you know, Rari as of a month or two ago, like understand what it means to not actually be able to redeem an IOU from one of these kind of like, let's call it like perpetual lending and borrowing platforms. And so that's kind of like where the, like the risk considerations come in, in my opinion, right? Like we're super happy in DeFi with like perpetual protocols where it's always liquid, you can go in and out. But the reality is at certain points in time, that liquidity will be constrained. Um, right. and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Right. Like, I mean, especially on the borrower side, I mean, I would say in the majority of real world borrowing cases, people are going to need that money for a certain period of time, not just, you know, oh, mm -hmm. two days in and out. Like, that's not how most lending works. Right. Most lending is like, I need this right. money for a year and then I'll pay it back or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I think we're probably going to see a lot of, a lot more notional finance type of things where it's like, no, you're actually locking your money for like three, six, 12. I mean, th that's how TradFi works, right? Whether it be with like uh, CDs or, or bonds or typically you are locking money for a longer period of time, not just a short amount of time, right? Right. And I, I mean, I, I can play devil's advocate to that talking point though, right? It's like... Mm -hmm. um, I think the scale of Aave and Compound versus things like Notional does say something about our market. And like, you know, you, you never want to be the guy that says the market is wrong. You know, I'm right. <laughs> and so I, I think to like, I agree with your point with the caveat being that um, I think fixed income will really shine if we get to a point where real world assets can really be brought on chain somehow, some way. Uh, I do think perpetual lending and perpetual borrowing works just fine for casino DeFi, right? Which is what we are today. Like I, I'm, I, I'm the first, I, I won't say it's not a casino, right? Cause like ultimately we're all just, um, kind of just speculating on a lot of things, but aren't facilitating a ton of like real world economic activity, if at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, like. We, we can sit here and say that fixed income is great for borrowing if you need to, you know, buy a house, buy a car, start a small business. But as long as no DeFi app is actually doing that, then, you know, gamblers, I do think, will prefer, like, the ability to just go in and out of positions, you know, as, as quickly as possible and on their terms. 
Um, so that's kind of like the, the the more philosophical side of the, the conversation kind, for sure. Kind of like to summarize, it's like DeFi isn't really matured enough to have these sort of structured products be more utilized than something like Aave and Compound, where like I said, we can't just degen around or like, you know, number going up, I'll take a loan, you know, stuff like that. It, exactly. Right. Because like, I mean, how long is a certain cycle, like a, a mini cycle in crypto, right? Like if you want to play a bear market bounce, you don't want to lever up for a three month period, right? You want to do it for two weeks, maybe tops. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that's like kind of the main reality where we're facing um, at the moment. And, you know, one thing we hope with Fiat is that at least we're kind of driving down the opportunity cost a little bit um, because we do have pretty high loan to value ratios. So like if you can like lend for three months, but then get 93 to 94% LTV on your position, you know, maybe like that's enough of a, a cushion to make mm -hmm. you be okay with that to some extent. Right. Right. Um, so it's, but I, I think it, it definitely is, is this kind of like catch 22 of like what has to get built first and no one really has a clear answer to it in my opinion. Yeah. yeah uh, no, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to ask, cause I see on Notion's website, they have a, uh the Nexus Mutual thing, like link drawing to their website. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship? Like, how does that relate to you guys? Cause, I mean, it's kind of like, cause that's through them, right? But how does that relate to um, all the stuff that you have with Notional? Yeah, so I mean, that, that happens at the user level, right? So like a, a user who deposits into Notional can go and take out a, a, a coverage policy over at Nexus. Um, I don't know what the current rates are. I, I think the floor historically for Nexus on any project was 2.6%, but then the wrapped Nexus mutual token trades at like a massive discount to its face value. So you wound up like getting a pretty nice haircut on that 2.6%. But that again is all done at the individual level. It's not okay. done okay. at a protocol to protocol level just yet. I, I do think, like I personally think there's a huge opportunity for like, deposit insurance type equivalents in, in DeFi, but that's really going to require a lot of like DAO to DAO or protocol to protocol coordination. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. To go back on, on the point before of like the Ave style versus your style, first of all, I don't think it's like one option only, right? I think obviously mm -hmm. long-term it's like, there's room for everything. My argument would be like, if I was going to give the counter to, oh, well, Ave is a lot bigger. I would say, yeah, but Ave is, is a big fish in an incredibly tiny pond right now that is DeFi. And the reality is we're not reinventing lending it, you know, this exists mm -hmm. already. So we can kind of look at how the, the lending markets have matured over the last whatever hundreds of years and kind of mimic them. Now, obviously there are differences in DeFi and advantages and I love Aave, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, yeah. we would, none of us would really be here without Aave as far as, and, and compound. But, um, yeah, I think saying like, oh, Aave's bigger is like, yeah, but it's extremely early, right? Like it's like saying, oh, Yahoo's bigger than Google. It's like, well, okay, but it was extremely early, you know? Um, I guess right. that would be my, my counter argument. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is the, uh, the overhead for pivoting any given DeFi protocol versus an actual financial institution is just so massively different and, and easier, right? Like how, how long would it realistically take for Aave to roll out fixed borrowing and lending markets? Yeah. I don't think it would take that long, no. <laughs> right? Like they have an army of some of the best DeFi engineers at the moment. Um, I mean, that's a whole other kind of philosophical conversation about like DeFi protocols all just become banks at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. um, everyone just starts in their own niche, but eventually, you know, kind of gets to that point. And so I think, you know, the like most constructive way of kind of like navigating that reality in DeFi today is like everyone's kind of building in their niche and presumably we're all going to converge at similar best practices, just like real banks have in, in the real world, right? Like, you know, like Curve is rolling out a stable coin, for example, right? Like, um, and I think there's just other examples of, or like, you know, like Maker and Frax getting into, into credit, for example. So I, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, th there's no need to like pick winners and losers just yet. In the real world, there's 
hundreds, tens of thousands of different banks, I would assume, right? And I don't see it being all that different in, in DeFi either. Um, and so it really just is a matter of these niche projects figuring out like best practices and then people copying, people uh, kind of just merging ideas, right? Almost. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I think we've talked about this one time on Twitter, but uh, in a back and forth. But um, do you think Ave will ever have their own stablecoin product? I wouldn't be surprised, right? Because, like, like I said, kind of at the beginning of the call, right? Like, at Fiat, we're trying to do one thing, and we recognize that it's like very far off. So we've rolled out a stablecoin type product as an MVP, but you know, from day one, we've said that. You know, we view stable coins as a means to an end. Stable coins are purely credit issued by a given protocol. And if you want to take the metaphor a bit further, like anyone who's giving you USDC liquidity on a stable swap pool is essentially kind of giving you like validity for that credit, right? Like the people who are willing to LP against Frax, Fay, MIM, whatever, right? They're essentially in this kind of position to make that credit real. Um, and so I, I think there's a ton of examples of where you could come up with these like theoretical situations and why certain protocols could just slap a stable coin on, right? Like, you know, you're in finance, you know, could, could issue credit against deposits made right in their protocol. Right. Same with Aave, same with compound. I think, I think there's like one group that tried to do a compound stable coin, but they didn't make it through governance. Uh, but I might be off on that. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see the future being not like one killer digital dollar. Like I think we're going to have like a bonanza of stable coins. Uh, and that's where this kind of concept of a repo market really does come into play, right? Because like, like we saw with the whole uh, staked ETH, ETH DPEG, right? Like there was never supposed to be a peg, right? Like, <laughs> like locked yeah. ETH should not trade at like it was always kind of papered over. Um, mm -hmm. And the reality is, especially as like stablecoin protocols get into real world lending and, you know, lending protocols issue stable coins, but also get into real world lending. Like each of these will carry some discount relative to, you know, USDC, right? If we assume USDC is the closest thing we have to an actual dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's more than enough, um, Arbing to be had in that type of universe, I think, where you're just like figuring out the discount rate for all of these um, kind of credit coins, right? It was essentially what they are. It's like as if, you know, all of us with like American bank accounts had City USDC or, or right. Bofa USDC. That would be pretty funny. <laughs> Bofa USDC. <laughs> right? Um, that, that's essentially pretty, kind of the end game I would expect, but I, I think that's still kind of early. Uh, that that kind of existed, right? Back, uh, you know, 150 years ago, didn't banks actually issue their own uh, dollars, so to speak, back in the day? Yeah, and honestly, that's one of my like nerdier pastimes is definitely just like reading like 1800s banking, yeah, type stuff. <laughs> Wildcat banking, exactly. Yeah. We're just doing the same shit, like because you know, banking without um, deposit insurance is essentially what DeFi is today. And right. so like the playbooks for what needs to be done or how to navigate certain scenarios, you can often just kind of figure out from reading, you know, random research on like 1890s bank run, right? Because like back in the day, bank runs happened way more often, you know, as mm -hmm. we're seeing in crypto today, because Celsius is not FDIC insured, because, you know, random DeFi lending protocol is not FDIC insured. Um, J so, JP Morgan, the OG JP Morgan bailed out everybody in 1907, right? And uh, because it was like a gold, they didn't, people didn't have enough gold reserves or something, or was that in the 20s? Uh, but it, yeah, if you can make a comparable argument to Mr. Bankman Freud today, <laughs> what's going that's on? Funny. Totally, totally. Um, and so, you know, the, the question then becomes like, can we actually scale DeFi to the size we want it to be? I would say yes. I mean, banking existed for centuries before the Federal Reserve came about. But at the same time, like, you know, as any Algo stablecoin founder will quickly realize, like, if you don't have a tax base, you're kind of just, uh, you know, you're, you're a dead man walking 
you might be able to survive a long time, but eventually like, you know, there's a reason most dollar pegs in like, in other countries have broken. Right. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I've heard people talking about that recently. I didn't, I wasn't aware of, uh, uh, four nations doing their own like stable coins. Basically, I, I'd, I'd only learned about that after like the Luna thing happened and people said, this has been tried before. Uh, I didn't know that. And sorry, I wanted to, I was going to cut you off, but when you mentioned the, uh, the Fed that, which literally got established after the 1907 bank run that I was just mentioning. So I was like, um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to mute. Uh, yeah, no, anyways, that's hilarious that you read about old time banking. I, I have to do that sometimes just to like. <laughs> Just to hear, but I mean, I bet there's a lot of uh, parallels to what goes on right now in the in the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the like quickest way to think about it is that what we've kind of accomplished with like smart contracts really is just making paper systems digital, right? Like we've getting rid of lawyers. Like, to to some, I wouldn't go that far. Like I don't want to be too literal with the term contract, but just yeah, this yeah. idea of like you know back in the day you would have an actual stock certificate or you'd have an actual bond certificate. Like things are bearer assets. Uh, Definitely so, getting rid of admin people for sure. Right, you don't right. have to go into a bank and and redeem your thing. I could just press a button on your website. Exactly, it's like paper at the speed of light uh, to, right. to some extent, right? <laughs> That's a good um, and so that's why all the old timey stuff kind of is more applicable to us than say like the banking fintech stuff that grew up in like the FDIC umbrella. Cause you realize you just literally cannot build certain things that exist in TradFi in DeFi today because you don't have the FDIC kind of guarantee. Um, that being said, there are still like credit unions and I think certain banks in the US that aren't FDIC insured, but if you do a little digging, they're like insured by their state. And then the state is of course insured by the federal government to some extent. So yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to like find like meaningful examples nowadays, I would, I would say. Yeah, certainly within the US, I mean, outside of the US. Uh, and I'm not, and I don't know if you uh, can give more commentary on like what other nations without the FDIC do. Um, I mean, maybe they just have their own version of it, right? Depending on the country, but um, like, what do other nations tend to do? Yeah, so I, I would say most developed countries do have some form of deposit insurance um, these days. The 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 twist there, though, is like uh, every currency that is not the dollar today plays second fiddle at, you know, mm -hmm. at best. And so they have their whole host of other issues um, because I, how do I put it, right? Like whatever the Fed does actually has more impact for most countries than what their central banks do, right? Like it's, you know, you, you can watch what the Bank of Australia or- Japan, you know, go see Japan right now. Exactly, but they all are at the mercy of the dollar. And ironically, the Fed only controls the domestic dollar. It doesn't control offshore dollars. Offshore right. dollars are far, far, far larger than domestic. So all central banks are LARPing to some extent, <laughs> but the Fed, you know, sits pretty within that kind of nexus. Um, and I guess the, you know, the most concrete takeaway from that, at least in my opinion, is like, I think things like USDC are like far more revolutionary than like, Bitcoin was from a like a real world wow. perspective, which is I agree definitely a hot take. But like hot take, I agree hot with you. Interesting. I hundred percent agree with you. It's like uh, like that's why uh, one one of my selling points, you know, now that, especially now at work in crypto and like kind of explaining it to my friends, like uh, USDC, you know, Circle is just better than PayPal. Like you use it, you know, use it on a cheap mm -hmm. blockchain like Solana or yeah. whatever Tron or Outgrand, I guess. Uh, it's just a better experience, better product. So, um, I, I mean, yeah. I, I like that take. I never heard that, but I like that. <laughs> like, I mean, if you think about it, right, like I think the CIA in the sixties would have killed for something like USDC, right? Like if you could beam dollars into any given country that has an internet connection, that's far more terrifying for a central banker than, you know, right. like digital gold, like central banks exist in spite of gold. But central banks existing in spite of dollars, that's quite different, right? Like, because um, now every country, you know, like, like every country has to determine whether or not they give their 
like citizens a free and unrestricted internet and allow something like USDC or, you know, all the other stable coins, which like 95% of stable coins today, they're dollar denominated. Like there's a reason for that, in my opinion. Um, it's, I think, very kind of calamitous if you're a central banker for a th second or third rate currency, um, because it just results in such a uh, capital, um, capital flight global spread um, to the dollar the it's it's so it's so funny you say that real quick uh the first time stable coins ever like kind of clicked for me was way back i think it was 2017 uh when we pretty much only had tether and uh i remember like reading or or listening to some podcast where they're talking about i think it was like thailand and maybe cambodia one of their neighboring countries uh a lot of the people started using tether usdt to move money between countries because the remittances were like 10% or something like that right. uh, each way. And this was just a much better system for them. And they had much more faith in in a dollar versus whatever their native currency was. And that was when I, I it first kind of clicked for me back then. And I think I think I mean, it's been talked about, right? Like, like stable coins really are, are, are the US government's like, the best the best thing they could have ever asked for. And they might not realize that yet. But I think they're starting to all right there's definitely an irony to kind of like the backlash i think stable coins have gotten when you know if i think well now now that like blackrock is invested in circle i think mm -hmm. <laughs> don't mean to come across as like they, they get it or anything, but yeah. i think that the people who need to know know and we'll see right. yeah on the uh stable coin topic what did mm -hmm. you what do you think about uh circle launching the euro coin euro stable coin I personally think it's just to appease regulators. Um, there hasn't been a ton of demand for Euro-denominated stable coins in general. I mean, you have um, Angle's Euro coin, right? I think is like the leading one at the moment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you held that, you would have been exposed to the Euro dropping as much as it has over the past year, right? And I, I don't see EU political risk going away anytime soon. Um, but I think Circle understands that they can't just parade the dollar into Europe and kind of replace demand for euros, right? Um, so my guess is Circle has this playbook going forward where, you know, they're going to appease local regulators with these local denominated stables. Um, but, you know, the, the market will ultimately choose, right? It's as free of a market as you can get right i would say crypto is um and so you know if, if they can bide their time and have this trojan horse of, of the local stable coin i do think usdc is ultimately always going to be the, the biggest beneficiary of that um you know because even if we have some massive sovereign debt crisis and the gold bugs were right and all that every other currency is falling first <laughs> right right so at least I don't know how, how well this will age, but I, I, I wouldn't bet on the dollar, uh, you know, dying first at least. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I want I had a point too from more just our last talking point to riff on a little more. Um, like one, um, there was a conference. I want to say it was actually the one, or not a conference, but a uh, a Congress meeting with uh, it was with SBF and Jeremy Allaire from Circle and Brian Brooks. That one, and. Um, there was kind of there was a there was a younger congressman, I believe, from Virginia at that at that meeting who talked about stable coins and like kind of shed a positive light on it in that same regard. Like he, he said, uh, um, it was kind of like an aha, like light bulb moment where it was like, oh, wait, like everyone, everyone abroad is using is, you know, finding new ways to use dollars like like what you were alluding to, like, you know, there's just more global access. And ultimately, that's a good thing for the dollar. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, exactly what you were just saying, where even like established well-off nations, like, you know, the Euro, uh, Japanese yen, like you can go look at these currencies and they are, uh, it's a lot worse than the dollar. So uh, people, you know, people are definitely uh, flock, flock to do dollars globally as well. And I don't see that changing as well. But yeah, I just wanted to talk about that with the regulators. Like, I think that's actually a, potentially a, a switch for them maybe seeing crypto in a more positive light. Yeah um yeah and i mean 
while I am like probably bullish on USTC and totally wish I had some circle equity, <laughs> um, yeah. it does unnerve me a little bit, right? Like I think everyone's aware of the potential for censorship uh, issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with the introduction of like the travel rule for exchanges in particular, you could probably argue that circle somehow falls under travel rule constraints if you were like, you know, mean enough as a regulator. Um, it's unfortunate, right? Because we really don't have a crypto native approximation of the dollar. And I think USDC is always going to be our anchor. Um, like, I mean, if, if even countries with tax bases haven't been able to, you know, create synthetic dollars super successfully, um, I do think Circle then gets to play this kind of like Trojan horse um, for for the space. Not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, but you know there is a surveillance state element that plays into that. And I think you know with everything that's going on, just in general politically these days, um, even just the like Roe Ro v. Wade stuff today, like you know it. Like, I think the the implications of censored transactions is always going to get greater and greater going forward to some extent, you know, as long as we have these, like, nation states we're all a part of. So that's the one thing I think that would, like, make me eat my words and regarding, like, Bitcoin not being revolutionary enough, right? Because, like, at least we'll always have, like, Bitcoin and Ethereum to, or Ether to, um, to navigate those types of scenarios. Uh, but, yeah, it's... It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Do you think that, um, like, f- like people kind of joke, like, Frax and die are, like, wrapped USDC in, in, in some ways, uh, and that, like, if you wanted to get around USDC control in the future, that, oh, you'll just have wrapped USDC. But, I mean, they could still, if, if they wanted to go, like, full nuclear, right, they could just... Uh, you know, not interact with the die contract or, or something like that. You know, it would be pretty extreme, but they could do that if they wanted to. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's fair. Right. Um, I, I'm not quite sure like how USDC is, is structured, like, right. Cause like if you froze like 4 billion of them, I don't know if they can claw them back. Right. Like, I mean, it could be the situation where there's a perverse incentive for them to freeze these massive honeypots because then no one can claim that USDC and it essentially becomes like free money for them. Uh, right. My guess is they probably do have some clawback feature. I think Tether may, I'm trying to think back to like the, the Tether, uh, Tether hacks or Tether um, kind of robberies, so to speak, like in 2019, 2020, I feel like there were some instances of like frozen funds, but uh, can't remember if there's a clawback but yeah i mean to your point on like these being like wrapped uh stable coins right like i think i i personally wouldn't go that far obviously like frax has a ton of usdc backing it and i think maker has gotten back up to 60 percent backing last i checked right. uh, but again the reality is that these protocols um they're they're like are DeFi banks, there are DeFi kind of wildcats, right? And so they need to have good balance sheets. And USDC is the only, you know, like tr- closest thing we have a, to a dollar, right? Obviously, there's counterparty risk and all of that, but you know, it's it's the smallest out of any options you have. And so in that sense, like I don't think like Maker is a failure if it's 60% USDC and 40% real world assets in the future, right? It's just acting as a bank, right? In, in, in that sense. And I do think that's like the, the path forward for like actually meaningful like DeFi, right? Like I think Frax recognizes the same, right? Like there's a ton of talk around like Frax Lend uh, as a product offering. And, you know, that's all far more sustainable than dumping governance tokens. Right. So, um, in, in that sense, I, I don't see the USDC backing being a failure, but by any means, yeah. Do you think back on since we were talking about like all of these guys basically becoming banks in some sense, and uh, you know potentially there being hundreds or thousands of of stable coins? 
I guess my argument against that, and I, I kind of, I do agree. I think we'll have a lot, um, but I guess the argument against that would be like, you would have lots of fragmented liquidity, right? Like ultimately mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that holds a stable going together, like you said, it's like, it's liquidity, you know? And right. if you don't have it, that's, we saw what happened with, with UST, right? Once that liquidity goes away. So mm -hmm. I guess that would be the argument against that. Do you think that's valid or do you think uh, it doesn't matter that we'll still have lots of stable coins? I mean, I would say that the infrastructure will presumably kind of advance alongside that type of development, right? So like, I mean, or curve 20 pool with 20 stable coins in it or but potentially, right? Like, you, I mean, you repackage things. I mean, what we're, you know, like an end game for fiat might be like you have all these crypto banks that have issued loans. Maybe Frax is more risk on the maker is and all of a sudden you're now able to kind of create markets between these types of players with kind of like an interbank market, right? Like maybe Maker needs liquidity against uh, some of its loans issued in order to maybe meet um, kind of withdrawals or, you know, those, those types of concepts, right? Um, and so I think today if, you know, our only kind of idea for this is curve pools or just stable, stable swap pools in general, I, I agree with you, like, at some point, like there may be a long tail, but there will be, you know, six to eight winners or something along those lines. Um, but I think that the traditional argument as to why that's okay is just that there is a risk curve uh, for the types of loans that can be made, right? So um, there will be things Maker and Frax won't want to touch in this future where DeFi can really go to real world assets. Um, and in that case, there will be people that step up and, you know, eight, eight out of 10 will blow up, but <laughs> they'll be stable for some period of time. You'll be able to arbitrage kind of the risk and there will be winners and losers. But um, the world is very large. You know, the global economy is, is very large. And especially if we get more and more localized, right? Like, I do think you'll see protocols that cater to very specific niches, right? Like, even today, right, you have something like Maple Finance that does mostly, um, I guess you would call it crypto native financing, mm -hmm. right? They're mostly dealing with market makers and such, whereas like Goldfinch is uh, catering more to like developing economies, for example, is, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. um, so with with all that said, I, I do think it, it it is kind of incomprehensible in our current you know, state of mind when it comes to DeFi, because we're only used to certain solutions for that liquidity. But I do think as markets mature, it'll become clearer and clearer uh, that the infrastructure can grow with that. But of course, you know, I, I, like real world assets is a very large kind of beast to tackle. Like I think Maker has done a great job so far, Centrifuge has as well. But at some point, all of us get a little too big for comfort when it comes to you know traditional incumbents, right? Like shadow, we like all of DeFi is shadow banking. If you if you take like a literal definition of just like not being in the traditional banking system, um, and so you know that's I think that's the most major hurdle DeFi faces. Like if we can onboard real world assets without like me worrying about a knock at the door we win right like it's <laughs> kind of my view. right like that my next question was going to be like how long until we see a, a mortgage bond on chain right like that type of thing do you think that's within the next few years or do you think it's further out than that um i'm an optimist on these things even though a lot of people are writing DeFi off for dead i think mm -hmm. i couldn't totally see that in the next couple of years um and it really just comes down to a jurisdiction being willing to, to play ball, in my opinion. Um, granted, like you can, I'm, I'm sure you can approximate it today already, right? Like if you have a mortgage bond that's owned by a trust that can then be tokenized in some offshore shell, like, <laughs> I'm sure you can do that today. But right, like if, if you really want to just like allow people to get a mortgage um, funded, like on chain, immediately right I, I do think that will require some small country that is internet forward accepting that the future looks a certain way and wanting to be first on, on that would, would be my guess mm -hmm. um and 
you know, if you have an American user that participates in that raise, then it becomes scary again. So it's, and I say this all as like a doxed American uh, protocol guy, right? So like, I, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's all tough. And I, I think we all understand where the puck is going, but there's this like very vested interests that have, you know, reasons for why they wouldn't be too happy with that. And so I think the American regulatory situation is probably going to be the, the main thing that determines when that type of activity, you know, really can scale, even if we figure out, you know, workarounds for onboarding real world assets to like MakerDAO today, or in a year or two, you know, random island nation allows, you know, mortgages to be done on chain, you know. I don't if, think that would move the needle all too much either. Right. Like if it were to be done in the US, do you think it would be like led by some traditional institution saying we want to try to make this happen? Do you think that's the route it's going to happen? Or do you think regulators maybe will get lobbied into it? I don't know. Like what do you what do you think is like the path towards that? So I, I haven't dug too deep into this, but I have this hunch that there probably is some niche in the US around like seller financing where this could maybe get, you could pull this off. Uh, <laughs> where, but I, I would say it probably has to be more of a guerrilla effort at the end of the day, because like mm -hmm. the existing banks just have no reason to kind of innovate on this, right? Like. What about like uh, emerging fintech company who has large ambitions that maybe they take that risk? Do you think something like that could happen? Maybe in Europe, potentially. I mean, it's, it's there's a, a million nuances, right? Um, yeah, and like, I don't know, maybe the credit union space is, is an interesting one for this because they are just kind of have been getting gobbled up by banks ever since right. the global financial crisis. Um, but it's just very, I, I think it's very hard to pull off in a system where the, the interests are just so deeply aligned against it. Right. Cause like mortgage backed securities are foundation of our current financial system for all intents mm -hmm. and purposes. Right. So it's a, uh, it's a thorny subject, uh, to say the least, but you know, if you have a negative outlook on kind of like American order an American political infrastructure. I think, you know, maybe the next few years, there's so much chaos that stuff like this just kind of goes through smooth sailing uh, because people are worried about other things. I, I really don't know. Um, but I do think that it has to be the end goal for DeFi. Like we just all have to survive long enough to get to the point where it does become possible because any, anything else is just, you know, I think, uh, far too endogenous. It's just crypto wealth going against crypto wealth, um, as opposed to uh, like touching touching base with the real world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. Um, I guess. Yeah. I on back to fiat DAO specifically. Like, mm -hmm. uh, what's your perfect ideal utopian scenario for what fiat DAO becomes? Yeah. So, I think with how we've built fiat to date and kind of what we're focusing on focusing going on forward um i would say what really excites me is the prospect of you know protocols like maple finance or, or trufi and being able to bring them into kind of a um a marketplace right so like this idea that you know, imagine you go to Maple Finance and instead of having a single pool for giving them money, they have a low risk pool, a medium risk pool, a high risk pool. You deposit right. for three months, six months, nine months, whatever. You then take your IOU to fiat and you're able to, you know, maybe mint our stable coin, but hopefully in the future you'll be able to maybe do peer-to-peer -peer lending against that position, or maybe, um, I don't know, like Maker has a 3DM or D3M module that allows you to mint die against, you know, specific positions, stuff like, right? Like just making fiat into almost like this almost virtual uh, asset, in which you deposit collateral, we say how much it's worth because of some discount formula. And then there's multiple ways of realizing um, kind of the value you hold 
uh, in your lent out position. Uh, because, you know, just for some background, right? Like the reason we've gone down the route with fiat we have to date is because a year ago when we were kind of working on this topic, right? It became clear that like a marketplace for bonds or, you know, fixed term assets, right? Mm -hmm. This wasn't really feasible because in the real world, there's a ton of leverage in those types of systems. Like we all joke about, you know, low interest rates on, well, I guess not anymore, but right when, when treasuries were, you know, a couple basis points or whatever, um, those things could still get levered up, uh, you know, hundred times over to some extent for like the really, really liquid ones. Um, and so that was kind of our main takeaway when starting Fiat was like, you have to solve for leverage or at least li unlocking liquidity, so to speak, before you can build out other things necessarily. Um, and so, you know, I think doing the stable coin mechanism we have today is like the fastest way of getting that on chain, but there's other ways to do it. And once you have multiple ways for people to get leverage against that collateral, then it becomes possible to layer on, you know, an order book or just like more peer-to-peer -peer stuff. Because like in the real world, bilateral transactions are quite common in, in these types of markets. Um, so all that is to say, I, I think we can really like act as a hub um, for accepting like all of these positions across DeFi and then coordinating ways on how people can access liquidity against them. You know, even like something like Gearbox, right, could, could be integrated here too. Um, and it, it really fits into this like longer term idea that we have that, you know, most of DeFi is going to morph into banking, right? Like Compound and Aave may be one specific use case today. Maker might be one specific use case today. But at the end of the day, like they all have potential pathways for becoming, you know, lenders, stablecoin issuers, um, asset managers, just in general. Um, and something is going to have to exist in between all of these protocols to kind of assess risk. And, you know, if people need to get bailed out, there has to be a coordination mechanism for, you know, one pro like nine protocols to take the good stuff left off of the one failing protocol. Um, so that's kind of how we're thinking about things at the moment. Obviously, we're super tiny, like we've had like utter liquidity issues. I think we've had 19 users. <laughs> so I don't mean to speak like out of turn on any of this stuff, but we just see, you know, there's a lot to build and we're going to continue to build. And I, I, we're working on some items to address some of the liquidity constraints we've had to date. Um, and yeah, like I said earlier, it's just, I think, a matter of surviving long enough um, and kind of seeing through like, what needs to get built uh, for our larger vision, right? To, to manifest in some sh shape or form. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I know we kind of went off topic a little bit and we're talking more about just like broad stablecoin markets and TradFi stuff. Um, could you talk a little bit about FDT and some of those broader plans that you guys have and how those two are going to be integrated in the future? Sure. Yeah, so, so for folks who aren't familiar, um, Fiat, we, we call it Fiat DAO because it only exists on chain. There is no real world entity. There's no foundation. There's no labs, nothing. So FDT is the associated governance token. And to date, it's just been your usual like voting token. Um, and I think we're at around like 10% is uh, in circulation at the moment. And that was purely just given away to date. Uh, but over the past two months, we have been working on kind of an integration between FDT and the actual stablecoin protocol. And this kind of goes back to your question, David, around like risk management, right? So like at the moment, we have 12 different collateral types we accept and they have uh, interest rates that were just kind of voted on uh, and, and approved uh, upon deployment of those vaults. But for us to really kind of satisfy this like more market-based vision, right? You, you do want to have something that is a bit more uh, dynamic, um, right? Because like, for example, right, like Porter Finance did a Dow bond for, for Ribbon Finance earlier this month. And, 
you know, what happens when a hundred different DAOs are issuing bonds, you know, various tenors, maybe they have multiple series, right? Like it just becomes very hard to like manually um, add one by one and, and all that, um, or, you know, appropriately determining, determining interest rates for them or debt ceilings for each specific collateral type. Um, and so kind of our main idea for FDT at the moment, and we're finally at a point where I think we're going to start like posting more about it just because I think like phase one of that rollout will probably be sometime next month, uh, is this idea that with FDT, we kind of have this mechanism where you can essentially vouch for different collateral types in a, in a gauge style system, uh, in order to determine both their debt ceilings and their interest rates charged um, because very similar to like maker, right? Like you are, you accrue uh, an interest in, in terms of die whenever you do mint die and, and similar with fiat. Um, and so with, with that in place, it does become possible for us to accept a longer tail of assets uh, as people, you know, may or may not be willing to kind of stake behind certain collateral types. Um, and in doing so, I, I think, you know, it's kind of like the next stage, uh, of our development because it does allow us to accept assets that may be more volatile, uh, than what we've accepted to date, whether that's due to FX risk, um, you know, like ohm denominated bonds, or they're actually under collateralized to some extent. So like if, if we work with like Maple Finance or Centrifuge or any of these types of players and accept assets that aren't, you know, totally um, over collateralized at a point in time. Um, so that's kind of the main focus for where we're taking FDT, where we still view it as a governance token. But, you know, again, like governance has a risk management connotation, especially at a financial institution. And so being able to kind of do so in a way that's uh, more weighting based as opposed to ad hoc votes, we think is just far more, you know, effective. And so I think from a user experience perspective, that'll look similar to like, you know, what you can do on Curve, on Ribbon, on Balancer today. Uh, I think we will be calling it VE FDT because we are, you know, doing a, a voting escrow model with with gauges. Um, but we are, you know, bringing our own modifications with it. We, we're not sure if we even want to like advocate for further emissions if that's even needed, right? Because we do have interest that could be um, used to subsidize or reward users. Got to be careful with the wording there. <laughs> um, but that's kind of where our head is at, uh, just so that we can actually be in a position to accept a ton of different collateral types, but in a way that at least, um, you know, mitigates risk as best as possible. Um, and so I'll, I'll definitely be sharing more about that kind of in written form over the next uh, couple of weeks. Gotcha. Awesome. No, it's cool. No, thank you for filling that. Out. I was just curious. I was looking at the docs and see anything on like the phenomenon and stuff. So, no, thank you. That was really informative. Okay, we've been going almost an hour. I don't want to hold you too long, but I wanted to give you like one last scenario, and you tell me if this could possibly happen within the next like year or two. And it would be since you mentioned TrueFi, I think maybe this could be like an easier one. Um, mm -hmm. Like TrueFi, for people who don't know, they kind of and correct me if I say anything wrong here but they basically connect real world identity to uh a wallet right mm -hmm. and then they can like bring in your real world credit score and 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 give you loans based on that right that's what truefi does uh, that's my understanding yeah okay so like you could in theory have like you were mentioning uh truefi has their own platform and then obviously there's people who deposit on truefi and, and are, are mm -hmm. lending out and uh, since you actually have like real credit scores and everything, you could create like low, medium, high risk pools and then create mm -hmm. essentially consumer debt bonds out of that. And those could be uh, you could have a marketplace of those on fiat now and people could borrow against those. Like, is that something you think could happen within the next year or so? Uh, to the extent the, the lawyers say yes, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that is my dream. Uh, okay. I, to, to, to be clear, I would say the one thing I guess is probably another hot take. I'm not super bullish on the idea of like credit scoring in DeFi. 
Uh, okay, because, that was another question I had yeah, for you about that. I mean, we have that. no legal recourse, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. you can imagine, like, what, what's the terminology from oracles? Like a, a long-range attack, right? Where it's like, I'm going to, like, Count of Monte Cristo, this under-collateralized lending protocol. I'm going to spend the next three years being a very yes. good uh. person. And then I'm just going to borrow five mil. I'm going to tweet like mm-hmm. Suzu you know, convince everyone I'm legit and then bounce, right? Like it, it just always kind of comes down to that game of chicken in my mind. And so what I think is probably more realistic, right, is I, I like Maple as an example because to date they've acted as this really convenient interface between DeFi and the real world, right? Because their loans are, uh, you know, actual contracts written with real world entities and they've sourced the liquidity from DeFi. I don't think you could do that in the US, but they're based in Australia. That's a whole other conversation. But I do think, you know, if you're able to tokenize the liquidity uh, positions on the DeFi side and still have the real world contracts, that's the holy grail. Uh, Because then you can actually have expectations around repayment. Um, And because I, I really don't see like mechanism design, you know, uh, making a massive difference here. Like like you said, David, right? Like lending's been around for 5,000 years. Like a new tech stack isn't changing anything. It's just we're able to have geography matter less. That's literally about it, right? Um, so if we have the ability to have those real world interfaces still and use DeFi to provide liquidity, but also to price risk, right? Like I just think instead of, every on-chain entity looking like an individual with a credit score, every on-chain entity is going to look like a corporation with a credit default risk. Like your address has a known credit default risk that has a market for, right? right? It would, would be, I think, a more realistic like outcome. Uh, but again, you know, I think the, the regulatory hurdles on, on that front are steep. Um, and there is a reality, right? Like people wonder why Compound or Aave or Uniswap haven't been like pushing the metal on innovation as much as people think they should have, right? I, I think there's a middle ground here where it's like all those teams are still working very hard, right? Like people don't really see kind of like the quality of life upgrades or just like the protocol refinement they do. But on the flip side, like, you know, Aave and Compound are very big. They talk to the Federal Reserve. They talk to the Bank of England. Like, I think they understand that, yes, they could build a lot more um, and build a lot of this infra we've talked about on this call. But if they are in precarious positions from a regulatory perspective, I think they know, like, you know, they're just going to keep accumulating in their treasuries and they're just going to wait for the day where doing so isn't an existential risk. and so that's kind of like my take on like the regulatory, you know, side of all of this stuff. It's like, I, th- I feel like most of DeFi is in a holding pattern to some extent until like the, the incumbents in our space are able to fight those battles for us to some extent. Um, right. Cause like we do not have the budget for a legal fight on tokenizing real world debt. Like <laughs> right. it's not in the runway. Right. Like, um, but compound may, Ave may, right? So I, I have definitely like a vision of what I want DeFi to look like. And, you know, it's what gets us all up in the mornings. But, you know, it's, it's definitely clear that, you know, there are certain fights that have to be fought by existing people in this space and existing projects in this space. And yeah, that's... So I, I try to I try to balance the positive with, with the negative for sure. Yeah, I guess final question since it does seem like unfortunately you know we need to get the regulatory uh, uh, battles. The regulatory battles matter more than the technological battles probably at this point. Uh, do you think that DeFi over the next let's go longer term like decade will make uh, governments more uh like lenient and like wanting to change things up or do you think it'll make them like harder like harsher on everything um i would say uh, on that time frame i I definitely think DeFi will appeal to to more and more governments um just because if you think about the current state um everyone's kind of been at 
the, the mercy of the a US-based system. Like, you know, a random bank in Indonesia has to, you know, deal with US kind of expectations around banking if it wants to be able to, you know, service uh, international capital to some extent, right? Like if it wants to access dollars for its higher net worth individuals, you know, th those types of things. And so as, you know, the, I don't know, the global macro keeps changing and there's less and less, um, oh, what's the word? Kind of like exit risk uh, for certain jurisdictions. I do think DeFi can be like a promising way of like maybe reinventing like local financial systems. That being said, you know, we have this countervailing force of growing author authoritarianism as well, kind of across the world. Like, I don't think that's a hotly debated topic. I think that's like pretty accepted at this point. And so it kind of goes back to that other comment, right? About like any country that allows free and unabated internet at the moment is now at the mercy of like USDC and, you know, kind of like an American order of DeFi almost, right? Because like that's where a lot of these, or, you know, Western in general, right? Because that's where a lot of these bigger DeFi protocols kind of stem from. Uh, and so I, I think it's an interesting situation in that sense, because I think more and more countries will have a reason to do something differently. But I do think there will also kind of be like this almost like generational divide where it's going to take younger politicians and younger bureaucrats to kind of swallow their pride and, you know, accept some of these like uh, supranational systems potentially. Because uh, like I can't imagine a 50 or 60 year old bureaucrat or politician, you know, seeing DeFi as an alternative, even if they are now comfortable, like, you know, saying screw you to the U.S. dominated banking system. Mm -hmm. But I, so I don't want to be too naive about it. Like, I understand we have a, a very long ways to go on a lot of this stuff. But I do think at least over the next 10 years, right, like there will be one country that has some reason to give DeFi a real go for for its local financial needs um even if it's just because we're able to do like you know credit unions at slightly larger scale than a local community um solution could or something like that right. um but yeah it's it's all path dependent and unfortunately the the people building in DeFi aren't really in a position to be like kind of agents of change in that respect like you can go talk to regulators, you can go talk to kind of central bankers, but like I've, I've been in that position before, like kind of regulatory education work, and it usually doesn't change until the old people retire. <laughs> yeah. 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 Makes sense. All right. Well, this has been, uh, this has been great. Really enjoyed this. If people want to uh, learn more about you or Fiat, how should they do it? Sure. So our Twitter handle is just FiatDAO, uh, so F-I-A-T-D-A-O. Uh, we have a link tree there, shows you all our resources. Um, and yeah, you, if anyone wants to talk more on Discord or whatever, I'm unfortunately like morbidly online. So <laughs> always happy to kind of uh, talk uh, wherever people have questions about what we're up to um, and, you know, collaborate on with other DeFi protocols as well. Awesome. And I'll, I'll link your personal Twitter as well. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Nice, meeting, nice meeting you, Max. Thank you for coming on, man. Really enjoyed the conversation. For real. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's been great. This is great. Thanks so much, man. Likewise. Have a good one. See you guys.